Tonight we consider our study of 2 Peter, continuing it, beginning with chapter 3 of 2 Peter, the final chapter of this three-chapter epistle. And in this second epistle, as he begins in chapter 3, that he has written to them, he reminds them that in both of those epistles he had, had stirred them up. That word stir literally is the idea of arousing one's mind, arousing one. Uh, a wake-up call, perhaps, as we would uh, use it in modern uh, language. Uh, but not that they needed uh, waking up uh, because they were spiritually asleep, but simply because uh, they needed reminding lest they lose sight of some things. And as he writes these words of chapter it reminds us of the importance of being reminded and that indeed it is important for us to uh, go over the same ground, so to speak, from time to time and that while we certainly uh, understand certain fundamental principles concerning the gospel, we cannot take for granted uh, that we uh, have understood them, learned them to the point and uh, have them in our minds to the extent that we do not need to ever be reminded of them. Obviously, we need to move on to solid food from milk as Christians. That's what Peter tells us that we're to do in his first epistle. Uh, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And then the, uh, the writer of Hebrews writing to uh, uh, Christians there chided them in Hebrews 5 verse 12 beginning, uh, for the fact that they uh, should have at that point in time been partakers of solid food, but were still in need of, of milk. But that's not to say that the Hebrews writer was um, uh, never uh, talking about milk a at all. We do need to be reminded of certain fundamentals of, of the gospel. And that reminding also helps us to uh, retain for a, uh, a longer period of time that which we might have tendency to to lose sight of. So Peter gives us an excellent example of reminding. And if you uh, go back to uh, uh, chapter uh, uh, 1 and uh, verse 13, uh, he has mentioned that already, if you recall. Yes, I think it is right. He wrote there, as long as I am in this tent, this tabernacle, this body, in other words, to stir you up by reminding you. Well, he's back to that now in chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir you up, stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. In other words, he's saying these are things you've heard before, but certainly I make no apology for having you hear them again, because we need to be well grounded, and obviously because we need to be able to teach uh, others, and because of the threat of false teachers, as he is dealing with in the second epistle, who will enter, and very slowly but surely, if they can, cause you to lose sight of that which you once knew very well. And so um, it is important for us to, uh, to go over that same ground from time uh, to time. And certainly, in my preaching, uh, I may cover uh, the same subjects on more than one occasion in more than one uh, year, uh, somewhat different approach to those same subjects uh, generally, but uh, indeed I would make no apology for that because uh, we may have people who haven't heard it, but even those who have, 
uh, certainly it, uh, it needs to be uh, reminded uh, in them. They need to be reminded of certain basic uh, truths. Notice the term beloved. It's used four times in the third chapter of Second uh, Peter. And it is significant in the sense that it's a term of endearment. And it simply indicates the, the strong affection that he had for those to whom he wrote. Beloved, I now write to you. Uh, this second epistle, and he uses that term beloved four times in this same uh, chapter. When he says, I stir up your pure uh, minds, the uh, American standard says the sincere minds, the word literally means clear uh, and open. The idea that your minds are open and clear, that is your minds are receptive to the truth. And that is, uh, that is a great quality. It is one that is not possessed by, tragically, a great many people in our world tonight, but it's the kind of mind that we should have. Not open-minded in the sense that we'll just take in everything and equally weigh everything. Obviously, uh, we should be well-grounded in the truth, but open-minded in the sense that we're always receptive to that truth and that we never resent that truth when it is presented, even when that truth for us may sometimes have to take the form of rebuke. We take that rebuke as it is offered, hopefully in love. We receive it in that same way, and we act upon it because we can appreciate the fact that it is true. That reminds us of Paul's rebuke of Peter in Galatians chapter 2 when he was playing the hypocrite, really, uh, at Antioch, and Paul rebuked him to the face. But Peter, as we have already pointed out, obviously received that, received it well, and thought highly of Paul and spoke highly of Paul. We should say he wrote highly of Paul, as we'll get to in the very last part of this epistle. Because remember, he talks about our beloved brother Paul in verse 15 of the last chapter of Second Peter. And so we should always have pure minds in the sense of clear and open minds, minds that are always ready to receive the truth and to apply the truth uh, to our lives. So, beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful, verse 2, of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord our Savior. I want you to notice the emphasis on the word here. That you may be mindful of the what? Of the words which were spoken. Of the commandment of us in that same verse. The apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter is writing at a time before this book was in its final and complete form. And so he emphasizes the words of the prophets. Uh, I would think including not just Old Testament prophets obviously. But New Testament prophets uh, as well. As the New Testament was being completed and was yet uh, in its final complete uh, form and the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior it's interesting that in some translations the American Standard for example it says and your apostles they are your apostles well they are our apostles today if you think about it are they not they sit on 12 thrones as Jesus promised they would ruling the 12 tribes of Israel who are the 12 tribes of Israel you are spiritual Israel 
And the apostles are sitting, as it were, on 12 thrones. That is representative of their authority through this word. And they are ruling the 12 tribes of Israel, spiritual Israel. In other words, the church is being guided by now the written and completed word of the apostles and other inspired writers. They are your apostles. They are my apostles in the sense that, as some translations, the American Standard renders it your apostles in this verse, in verse 2. And then in verse uh, uh, 3, knowing this first, that is, first of all, consider this. In the beginning, consider this, brethren, he writes, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, what? Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of creation. We stop right there. All things continue as they were. Where is the promise of his coming? Are there any scoffers today who are basically asking that question in ridicule and in mockery of those who claim to be believers in Christ? Of course they are. The evolutionists would be asking that uh, that question, the atheistic evolutionist, uh, those who are the atheists and the infidels, uh, those who do not believe in the, the deity of Christ, the fact that he has risen from the dead, that he has ascended to the throne of, of God, that he's at the right hand of the Father, and that he, as he promised he would, is going to come back at some point in time, a time at which we do not know, but for which we must be prepared. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, he told the apostles, and thus us for all time to come. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Are there any of, uh, any of those scoffers still alive today uh, and well today who are asking that same uh, question in ridicule? Where is the promise of his coming? After all, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of creation. Well, that's basically a position that would be called in our day uniformitarianism. In other words, uniformitarianism says that the present is the key to the past. If you want to know how things were uh, supposedly billions of years ago, which I don't believe uh, uh, that the earth is that old, not by any stretch of the imagination, and that's what it takes to believe that it is, a stretch of the imagination, but what about those who say, well, the present is the key to the past. If you want to know what the past was like, just look at the present because basically everything has continued on an even keel. That's uniformitarianism. And that uh, there has been no real upheaval or no real catastrophe to interfere with the fact that uniformitarianism has continued. And so catastrophism, the idea that some catastrophe has taken place that has altered dramatically the face of this world, the idea of the uniformitarianist is, no, that has, not, that has not occurred. And so they would deny the universal flood, uh, for example, but Peter is going to remind them of it in the very next verse. But before we get there, for since the fathers fell asleep, who are the fathers? It may very well be that the fathers are the earliest of the Christians who have fallen asleep. That is, the, the term here obviously means uh, have died because that is a figure that is often used for sleep. Remember with Jesus when he was talking to the apostles about Lazarus who had died? He was talking about his sleeping. And uh, the apostles uh, thought he was being literal in what he was saying initially. And they said, well, if he's asleep, he'll, 
he'll, he'll awaken. And then finally the Lord had to tell them, he is dead. He is dead. But he used the figure of sleep. And if we uh, don't realize it or not, whether we realize it or not, we basically use it um, every time we use the word cemetery. Because our word cemetery comes from the word that indicates a sleeping place. That's what a cemetery is, literally, from the word indicating a sleeping place. So when he says the father, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. Nothing has changed. And so if the fathers are these uh, earliest Christians, then it brings up an interesting point. And whether that's the reference or not, it still brings up an interesting point about this contention that is being made. It may have been the case that the early Christians, in their misconception about the second coming of Christ, may have actually fueled this argument somewhat. How so? Well, you remember that in the first Thessalonian uh, letter and also uh, in the second Thessalonian letter as well, the apostle Paul wrote to Christians to correct a misapprehension that they had about their loved ones who had died in Christ. Remember, there were some of those who thought that since their loved ones had died in Christ before Christ came again, that their loved ones were going to lose their reward because they had the mistaken notion that Christ, after he ascended to the Father, was going to come back within their lifetime before these Christians died. Therefore, when they saw these Christians dying and they knew the Lord had not come, they were fearful that their loved ones had lost their reward. Remember Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13 especially, to correct that misapprehension and say, no, 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 they, we're not going to proceed. Those who are alive are not going to proceed those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died. But when the Lord comes again, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, or in this way, shall we ever be with the Lord. And he ended that chapter at verse 18 saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. But it may very well be that the misapprehension that these early Christians, many of them had, may have fueled the question that is asked here. Because some of these may have been scoffers asking the question since saying, well, look, some of you Christians yourselves thought the Lord was coming again in, in your lifetime, and he didn't come again. And look at the fathers, the earliest of the Christians. Some of them thought that, and they have since died, and the Lord hasn't come yet. So where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they have from the beginning. Well, Peter says, there's something you're not thinking about. There's something actually that you are willfully ignorant of. And that brings up another point about how people can be willfully ignorant. And do you not believe that there are those tonight, sadly that are willfully ignorant of, of certain verses in Scripture that they simply don't find to suit their particular way of thinking or their doctrine, and so they basically make themselves willfully ignorant of those passages or twist them or pervert them in such a way as to make them comport with their preconceived ideas. Peter is going to talk about that in verse 16. They rest or twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Tragically, there are myriads of people alive and well today who are willfully ignorant of passages of Scripture about which they should be most familiar and which they should be obeying. 
And Peter reminds us that willful ignorance is something that was characteristic of those of his day as well. This they willfully forget. They are willfully ignorant of this. What is it, Peter? That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So he's talking about the creation account. The earth came from what? Water. Water that was separated from the land. God caused the dry land to uh, appear in one place, separated the waters from above, from the waters below, and uh, separated the waters below from dry land, and thus the earth as we know it, uh, or as it was then, not as we know it today, because it has changed by the very phenomenon that Peter is about to remind us of here, and that is the universal flood. But it was created by the word of God. Think about the kind of power, if you possibly can contemplate that kind of power, and it's difficult for the finite mind to do so. Try to contemplate the kind of power that can speak into existence the vast universe of which we are, with which we are somewhat familiar. And I say somewhat because there's so much about this universe that we don't even know and probably never will for as long as time stands. That's how vast and complex it is. But everything we do know about it speaks to a unique complexity and design that is inexplicable in any other way other than by the creation of Almighty God who created this earth as well as this vast universe. But how did he do it? Through Jesus Christ, the living word, the eternal word, who spoke it into existence. He spoke it into existence. But let me ask you this, how is this world, this universe, which was spoken into existence by an omnipotent God, how is it being maintained? Well, man is responsible for maintaining it now. He's the one that keeps the sun in the heavens, right? Man does that. Well, of course not. You can't do a thing about the sun or the moon, nor can I. It is the same word that brought all of it into existence that is keeping it going. And it is that same word that one day will take it out of existence by speaking it out of existence. That's exactly the way it is. That's the way the Bible describes it. And oh, what an infinite power is contemplated when we think about that kind of power. He spoke into existence and continues to maintain this universe by that word. The word of God, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Then verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Then verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, there's my point that I just made, the heavens and the earth that were created by the word that was, spoke, that was spoken are now preserved by the same word, and notice this, are reserved. The idea of the word reserved there is a treasury. They are being stored up, or they are in a treasury as it were, treasured up for what? 
Destruction by water again? No, remember the rainbow. Every time we see that rainbow, we are reminded of God's covenant that he would never again destroy the world by water. But they are now being reserved for fire. Until when? The day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You know, it is amazing, truly and sadly so, that men reject the overwhelming evidence for a universal flood. They deny that anything could have ever occurred or that it did occur. They they concoct all sorts of arguments to try to prove uh, the evolutionary theory. The geologic timetable is a myth, really, as it is constructed. And yet, if you look at the geologic timetable and the laying down of fossils and the various strata, uh, according to the geologist and their timetable, you know, when you look at that geologic timetable, you'd think, well, there it is. Boy, they've got everything laid out. That's just the way it is. And I ought to be able to, I ought to, be able to leave the pages of that textbook on which I find that geologic timetable and go out here and, and see it in actuality. You will never see it in actuality because it does not exist. It's a figment of the evolutionist imagination. It is a means by which they try to prove something that is not provable. The flood gives evidence that it actually occurred and the fossil record gives evidence of that. There is evidence all over this earth of a catastrophe of the magnitude and the extent of the flood. And if one would simply be objective in one's examination of the evidence, one could not deny it. Oh, there are all sorts of problems with the geologic timetable, one of which is that supposedly you've got the lowest forms of life that are just few in number on the earlier strata, and then a little more uh, life uh, forms that you would see on the uh, next strata, which is younger than the one below it, and then the other one above it is younger than the one below it and younger than the one below it. The only problem with that is that there are strata where the one above, the one above is far younger than the one below it. In other words, there's a complete reversal of the strata. So instead of the oldest being at the bottom and then the next oldest and the next oldest and the next oldest, sometimes it is just completely flip-flopped. And there are examples in Wyoming. There are examples in Montana. There are examples in various places of the flip-flopping of those strata. And it completely destroys the whole theory of the geologic timetable. Also, one would expect, according to the geologist, to find fewer and simpler forms of life at the bottom of the geologic timetable and then gradually more forms of life until ultimately more and more forms. And yet, according to reality, the living forms burst onto the scene in rather sudden fashion, rather than fewer and then gradually more. They suddenly burst on the scene. Yes, you do find at times simpler 
life forms at the bottom because of various factors that uh, can be easily explained based upon the lack of mobility or the simplicity or the shape of certain things as they were trapped by the flood. They would have been trapped at lower levels versus those who were able to get away from the flood for a longer period of time and were more mobile. They would, be, they would have been buried in the higher strata. There is perfectly logical explanation for everything we find in the true record of geology. And in the true record of geology, it is in complete harmony with the absolute occurrence of a universal flood. And so to deny it is to be, as Peter said, those in his day were willfully ignorant. And it's really interesting that we have more more so-called scientific evidence to support the flood today than they had access to in that day. And yet we have more people denying it today than denied it in Peter's day, I'm quite sure. That's rather ironic and completely tragic. So they willfully get, forget that the word of God, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that existed perished or was brought to ruin, not annihilated. The word there, ruin, does not mean annihilated, taken out of existence, but it was brought to ruin just as we know it was. It was wiped out from the standpoint that uh, mankind was wiped out and the living creatures. But the heavens, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that is uh, being uh, brought into, not only brought into existence, but kept in existence are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or the punishment of ungodly men. But notice our final two verses tonight. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Well, there it is. There's where some get the idea that you can calculate all sorts of things if you'll just use that formula because the Bible says that with the Lord, one day equals 1,000 years. Is that what that verse says? No. It does not say that at all. What it does say is that with the Lord, in the Lord's way of dealing with things, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In other words, Peter is not giving us a formula by which we can tell how God tells time. He's simply setting forth a principle that says God doesn't tell time. He doesn't keep time the way you keep time. It's very reminiscent of a statement we find back in Psalm chapter 90, the 90th Psalm in verse 4. There the psalmist writes, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. In other words, God doesn't reckon time the way man reckon times. But in no sense is Peter trying to tell us that we can equate one day, and we know that with one day with the Lord, that's a thousand years. No, there's nothing in Scripture that says that at all. He's just simply using the principle that God does not reckon time as we do to demonstrate that it doesn't matter if thousands of years have passed since the promise of his coming, that doesn't mean that's going to change his coming. It is coming. It is coming. And if it's 10,000 years or if it's 10 million years before it occurs, 
With God, that's a drop in the bucket. Whereas from our perspective, our finite perspective, we sometimes lose track of time and how much time is involved in certain things. What about a promise a man might make to another man? A man might make a promise to some other man and a long period of time between the promise made and the promise kept could keep the promise from being kept. How so? Well, the man who made the promise might die if you enough period of time, long, not long enough period of time passes. Or he might forget. Or he might simply renege on his promise. Any number of circumstances could change given enough time from the time that a man makes a promise to a man. But when God makes a promise, nothing changes that when it is his will, his absolute will, and not his contingent will. And the fact that Jesus is coming again is not contingent upon anything. That's absolute. And God has promised that his only begotten son is coming back. And so the first thing that Peter points out to us here is that God doesn't reckon time the way man does. But there's a second point that he makes in the final verse for our consideration tonight. And that is this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The second factor in the Lord's delaying his coming is mercy and love. Mercy, the mercy of God, the long-suffering of God. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. And the scriptures are replete with statements that make it abundantly clear that God desires the salvation of all mankind. And God is allowing, through his long-suffering and his mercy, time for man to repent and come to him. But as we shall see, the Lord willing, as we continue our study next time, that long-suffering has its limits. And verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come as a thief in the night. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to come to the Lord before the Lord comes to us again. Because when he comes again, there will be no further opportunity for us to come to him. Tonight, if you haven't done so, we plead with you to come to him in obedience to his will. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Because of the mercy and long-suffering of God, if you have not obeyed the gospel, you now have that opportunity to do so. But that long-suffering has its limits. And there are things that can certainly interrupt, tragically and suddenly, one's opportunity for further obedience. Don't take that chance if you're here and outside of Christ. And if you need to come home to your first love in repentance and have us pray with you and for you to the God who loves you and is long-suffering towards you as you come home to him, we plead with you to do that if that's your need tonight. As we stand to sing, will you come?